Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. All right, y'all. Y'all can have a seat. Say hello to somebody that's right around you. This is your church family. Say hi. And if you're watching online, stop in on Facebook, YouTube, stop on on the app, you know, tell us you're here. We love getting to spend time together as a church family. And, you know, through this whole series, and especially the last couple weeks when we've talked about that, that we love to come here in this space for an hour on Sunday morning, but we really want you guys to fall in love with being together with one another, with people that, that maybe you don't typically get to be with Monday through Saturday and to find these seats outside of Sunday. And I hope that you're doing that. I hope that you've signed up for a class or, or you're going to go to a community group because we are a family. And in this entire series that we've been in across the threshold for the last 10 weeks, it's our hope that, that you have moved from, from not just settling to, for living in a status quo home, but to leaning in to transforming your, your house into a haven. That, that you have recognized areas that you need to grow in as, as a disciple yourself. That you have recognized places in your marriage that needs to be addressed. Things that as a parent you need to work on. Things that as a son or as a daughter you need to do better. Things that as a brother, a sister, a roommate, an employee, a coworker, whatever. That, that you are not just settling for, I'm okay with how things are. When God wants something more for us. Now, as we wrap up this series today and we look forward to live love next week, there's one thing that I, we can't not talk about today. And that, that's that we as humans have this natural instinct of self-preservation. That at all costs, we want to keep ourselves safe, that we want to preserve ourselves. But I want to challenge you that as, as we've worked so hard to, to make our homes a haven, and I, I hope that you have been working hard on that. Yes, our homes are meant to be a haven, but they are not a place to hide. A lot of times we work really hard to build places that feel safe so that we can stay in them and be protected from all the other bad things that are out there. We do that with our homes and, and we do that with, even with our churches. Now, sometimes that looks like we, we don't want people in our mess. When our homes are in disorder, we close the blinds and we turn off the lights and we lock the door. And if the doorbell rings, we pretend like we're not home because we don't want anybody to come in and see the pizza box that's sitting on the table from dinner last night, even though it's after lunch today. Okay, this is a true story from a very real life this week, okay? Yeah, right? And we don't want people to see our mess, so, so we hide. But because this instinct of self-preservation is so strong within us, sometimes we do the same thing even when things are really good. You know, we've, we've worked so hard to, to move our homes from house to haven, and now it is. 
And we don't want anybody to come mess it up. We don't want, we don't want to leave it, and we don't want any, anything to change. And, you know, we, we, we justify it, and we say things like, okay, God, I mean, I know that I'm supposed to love people, right? But I don't really want people in here, because remember that, that Bible verse that Matt kept saying, something from that Isaiah guy a long time ago, so if it was from a long time ago, it's totally true. You want us to live in places of undisturbed rest. And you know what disturbs my rest, God? People. People. People disturb my rest. And if that's what you desire for me, then surely, like, I've made this space and you want me to stay in it. I've worked so hard on my marriage. I've worked so hard to be a better parent and not yell as much at my kids. Again, true story. And, and, and I've worked so hard at even just growing myself as a disciple. I, I want to be a mature believer and I've worked so hard. And if I let people in, they're just going to ruin it. We do the same thing for our church, okay? Because remember, our church is also our home. We, we say things like, we, this is our church home, and you belong here. We use a lot of family language, right? Well, we say the same thing about church. We say, God, okay, I've been looking for a church home for a really long time, and now I've found one. I love this church that I'm in, and I love the people that I get to be with, the people I do life with. I love how safe I feel here. I love that I'm noticed and needed. It's wonderful, and I don't want it to change. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to ruin it. So I can't just go to Walmart and start chatting up the first person I see and invite her to come to church with me because I'm, she, for all I know, she might be a hateful gossip. And she's going to come in here and she's going to start talking really bad about everybody and she's going to ruin it. And I surely can't invite my Uncle Bob because Uncle Bob complains about everything. He has an opinion about everything. Now, I know that he needs Jesus. But if I bring him to church, he's going to complain. He's going to complain that the music's too loud and he's going to complain that the preacher doesn't wear a tie and he's really going to complain that they let a a woman preach. And I I know, right? (laughs) Let's just call it like it is. And he's going to complain and he's not quiet. He's not quiet about his opinions. He's going to let everybody know and he's going to ruin it. And everybody's going to hate Bob and they're going to hate me for bringing him and ruining this wonderful church home that we have, right? We want to hide. We want to be protected. We want to keep these places safe. But I think that when we move from house to haven, when that that home is finally a haven, it should prompt us to want to invite people in, not be an excuse to keep people out. Now, Jesus had something to say about this. Of course he did, right? Jesus, he had something to say about inviting people in and about God's desire for people to come in to his house. Now, Jesus finds himself at a dinner party with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the rich, wealthy, well-known, self-important people of the day. If you got an invitation to their house, it was a really big deal. Jesus accepts this invitation, and he goes in, and in the middle of all of these well-to-do people, he 
Jesus, who for all intents and purposes is homeless. I mean, he's, he says himself, the son of man didn't have a place to, to rest his head. And he, because he was moving about from place to place telling people, I am the Messiah. So here Jesus is, doesn't, literally doesn't have a, a pillow to lay his head on. And he starts giving these really well-to-do people some advice about how they should throw their dinner parties, who they should invite, and, and how they should behave if they go to one. He says things to these people like, when you go to a party, you need to sit in the lowest seat at the table, the, the most humble seat. Don't, don't put yourself in, in the most important and prominent places because you'll be really embarrassed when the host asks you to move down. But these are the people who expected to be in the highest seat. They can never fathom walking into a, a room, a banquet, and sitting at the lowest spot in the table. And then he says, oh, and by the way, next time you, you give a banquet, don't just invite your friends. Don't just invite your family. Don't just invite your rich neighbors who can repay you for, for inviting them. They're, they're going to invite you back, you know. You're really not gaining, doing anything, you know. So next time you have a dinner party, don't invite your friends and family and rich people. Go and invite the poor. Go invite the lame and the blind and the, the people without resources and the people without connections because they can't repay you. But your Father in heaven who sees what you do, he will reward you. One day, you will eat bread in God's eternal kingdom, and that will be your reward. Now, as you can imagine, they probably didn't like hearing this, and in my imagination, I just, it's crickets, right? It's like, But there's always the guy, the one guy that's got to break the silence, you know, who's like not okay with awkward silence and he has to say something. And so this is where we're going to pick up this story. This is Luke chapter 14. Let's start in verse 15. He says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay. <laughs> and Jesus, I just imagine, he puts his hands in his, his, his head in his hands. He's like, oh, okay. How do I tell them that they are not going to be the ones to eat bread in the kingdom of God because they're missing everything? So instead of just telling straight up, okay, y'all, I got to tell you what's what, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story because Parables were a way of, of Jesus sharing truths about the kingdom of God. And the people who were ready to hear and receive that teaching, they would hear and receive it. But the people that were not would just hear a nice story. So here's the story that he tells. He says, then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, come because everything is now ready. I wanna pause right here. I want you to understand that at this day and time, they didn't have Google Calendar. You didn't get an alert the day before to remind you that you had been invited to this party. Instead, you would have been given several weeks notice that on this particular day, that this person was going to be giving a feast and that you were invited. 
And in the meantime, in those days, the host would prepare the feast. He would, you know, make sure that the cook had everything they need. The guest list was secured. The, uh, the band was booked. The landscapers had, you know, were coming to trim up the garden and the, the things. And the, the house was cleaned. And the people who were invited would also have prepared. They would have made sure that they had an appropriate garment to wear, maybe a gift for the host. And on the day of the feast, when everything was ready, they would send out the servant to say, okay, it's ready. Y'all, y'all come on. We would die. Some of us are like, are you kidding me? I would just have to sit around and wait all day to know what time I was supposed to be there? Decline, okay? (laughs) I know, right? All right, so here's what happens. He goes out, verse 18. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm gonna go try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married. Therefore, I am unable to come. The fact that this guy didn't know like 10 days ago that he was going to get married is okay. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now, parables give us clues about who God is, about his, what he desires, and about how his kingdom operates. And a few things that we learn in this parable is we learn about his character. We learn that God is generous and kind and intentional and just. We learn about God's kingdom. We learn that in the kingdom of God, there's always room for more. His riches are inexhaustible. We don't have to protect and preserve what we have in him, thinking like, well, if there are fewer of us, that means that there's more for me. That's not how God's kingdom works. God God has a banquet table and all the leaves that go in the middle and all the chairs to continue to add to it. There's never... It's never too late to invite one more in. There's never, we're never running out of space in God's kingdom. But we also learn about his desires and we see that he desires for his house to be filled. His desire is that his house would be full, that that all people would be part of his kingdom. Jesus said sort of the same thing to his disciples in John 14. He told them, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, but also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas, we love Thomas. He says, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus says, you do know the way. I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his disciples, just like the master was preparing his house for people to come in. And Jesus is saying, look, you, I'm making a place for you and I'm giving you a way in. And that way is through me. He has prepared a place. He is the invitation. And we are the servant who goes out into the highways and the hedges to bring people in. Now, two years ago, uh, it might be two years ago to the day, Matt and Deborah Rhodes came here to preach. Now, Matt and Deborah, uh, they are co-pastoring a church plant in Greenville, South Carolina called Parkside. And actually, Parkside Church is celebrating its one-year anniversary today. I know. We are so excited, y'all. They are, they are our sister church. We love Matt and Deborah and all the things that God is doing in Greenville, South Carolina. But I will never forget the day that she stood on this platform and I sat in that chair right there on the front row. And she said a truth that was so gut-punching that I audibly said out loud, dang it, because she was so right and it's not that I didn't want Deborah to be right, but I didn't want her to be right about the things she was right about. She said this. She said, we have gotten really good at making excuses and really bad at making disciples. And I knew she was right. I knew that we had made excuse after excuse after excuse why we we're not making disciples, but we must, we must stop hiding behind our excuses and bring people in to the kingdom of God. So I wanna talk about a few excuses that we make when we say, oh, I cannot tell people, I can't, I can't do that. I cannot tell people about Jesus. The first excuse we make is one that is related to our call. We say things like, well, I'm not called to share the gospel. I'm not called, I'm not called to preach. I'm not called to tell people about Jesus. I'm an accountant. I'm a teacher assistant. I'm a mechanic. I'm not called to tell people about Jesus. That's the preacher's job, right? We say that we're not called to this. But I want to remind you that making disciples is not only the job of the person who stands on a platform and preaches on Sunday, but it is the mission and responsibility of every person who carries the name disciple. We are all called to make disciples. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus came near, near to the disciples and said to them, all authority has been given in me, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's why we have written what is written on the wall in the lobby, inspiring people to live in love like Jesus because that is what a disciple is and it's what a disciple does. We inspire people to live in love like Jesus. That is all of our call, not just the person who stands here. We hear the question all the time. It, it might be in an email, it might be out in the lobby. Somebody will come up to us and they'll say, what do y'all do for a disciple? What do you do for discipleship? And I wanna look at them and say, what do you do for discipleship? Because this is on all of us. We are all called to be disciples and to make disciples. The second excuse that we come up with is in relation to our comfort. We love being comfort. We, we buy a lot of things that make us comfortable, right? So we make excuses. We say things like this. Talking about my faith is really uncomfortable. Inviting people into my house. Oh gosh, I'm sweating. Inviting people into my house, I am really uncomfortable. Inviting somebody to church, that makes me really uncomfortable. Meeting new people, striking up a conversation with a stranger about faith, telling somebody that maybe what they believe isn't true. That makes me uncomfortable. But why do we think that our earthly comfort is what we should pursue at all costs when throughout the Gospels, Jesus promises us basically the exact opposite. He says things like this in Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. That does not sound comfortable. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is not comfortable. When one person, when somebody strikes one cheek, turn to them, turn your other cheek and, and let them hit you on the other side of the face. That's not comfortable. And yet, we worship it. We pursue it. Comfort has become our idol. It's the thing that, that makes us plan for the future. And I'm not saying don't plan for the future. But it's the thing that drives our decisions is what is going to make us the most comfortable. But Jesus says you're misguided if you're looking to be comfortable. Because he actually goes on here in chapter 10, it's not going to be on the screen. After he says you're going to be taken into the synagogues and flogged, he said, but, but don't worry about that. Because when that happens, the Holy Spirit will be with you and will tell you everything that you need to know, will give you the words that you need to say in that moment. We are misguided when we seek our comfort above seeking the one who comforts. We need to seek Jesus. Yes, sometimes sharing our faith will make us uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable isn't a bad thing. 
We need to prepare ourselves for that because people need Jesus more than we need to be comfortable. The third thing that we use as an excuse is in regard to our competency. We say things like, but I, I don't know enough. I don't know enough to make disciples. I mean, I'm barely a disciple myself. And, and what, if, what if people ask me about the dinosaurs and where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I just, I don't know enough yet. I don't know it enough to, to make a disciple. I read this week a statistic that said that the average Christian is about 300 Bible verses overweight. That we hold so much scripture in us, but do not exercise what it teaches. We've been so caught up in being a disciple that we've forgotten that one of the hallmark features of a disciple is that they make disciples. And I get the, the, you know, you feeling like, I, I don't know enough. I mean, I, they're going to ask me questions that I don't, I don't know the answer to. But you're not alone in that. In fact, Jesus' disciples were in the same boat. Did you know that the first time that Jesus sent his disciples out to go proclaim the good news that the Messiah had come, they had been his disciples for less than a year, some of them only a few months. And they go out two by two. You can see this story in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says that he summoned the 12 and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal all diseases. And then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Then he gives them some advice. He says, take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, then leave that town. Shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. That was their task. And they had been disciples for barely a year, if that. And you might say, but Jasmine, but they were like the disciples. I mean, they got to sit with Jesus. They saw Jesus take his hands and put them on somebody's eyes, and they used to be blind, and now they're not. And they saw that. They heard Jesus answer the questions and, and, and explain about God's kingdom. They had gotten that firsthand experience, and so probably they were better equipped when they went out. And maybe that's true. But then, what about the Samaritan woman? The woman at the well, sometimes we know her as. So there was a Samaritan woman. Jesus finds himself by a well in Samaria. And the disciples had gone off to get food. And Jesus is sitting there, and this woman comes about midday to draw water from the well. And Jesus says to her, uh, will you give me something to drink? And she's like, me? You want me to give you something to drink? And he says, yeah, but if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for living water. And she's like, living water? 
where do you get this living water? I am very interested in this. I'm very tired of coming out here to this well. And he says, oh, okay, I'll tell you about this living water, but first, go get your husband, bring him back here, and we'll talk about it. And she's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, you are right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband. So indeed, what you say is true. And she says, oh, okay. I see that you're a prophet. And she changes the subjects and she's talking about worship. And he says, look, it doesn't matter about where you worship. It doesn't matter if it's here in, 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 on this mountain or there in Jerusalem because what matters is who you worship and how you worship. And she says this, we'll pick up in verse 25 of John 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So she gets up and she goes back into her town. And if you drop down to verse 39, we see what happens. It says, now the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. See, the Samaritan woman, she didn't stress out about explaining Jesus to the people in her town. She didn't stress out about explaining him. Instead, she focused on bringing people to him. Through the power of her testimony, not, not elaborate scholarly answers, but through what she had personally firsthand experienced when she was with Jesus. And because of that, they came to him. And that's what we focus on. We don't have to explain everything. I know you might not feel like you're equipped with the Greek lexicon and all the commentaries. I know that. But you have your story. You have what Jesus has done for you. Tell that story and bring people to Jesus. Now, if you'll think back to that servant in the parable, you see, he had seen the feast. He, he'd probably gone into the kitchen, and, and when the cook was making the dishes, probably said, hey, come here, come here, taste this, see what you think. He had seen the hall and the table. He had heard the band warming up. He had seen the, the elaborate gardens. He knew what these guests were going to experience when they came in because he himself had experienced it. And so when he goes out to tell the people that it's time to come in, he is shocked when they say, oh, we can't come. But he's probably delighted when his master sends him back out into the, the cities and the streets and the highways and the hedges because what the master had prepared was too good to miss. We are that servant. We 
who call ourselves disciples have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have seen, like we just sang, the evidence of his goodness all over our lives. Why do we not want to take that out and share it with the world? The only way that people are going to come in is if they walk through the doors. Because the only people, the only way that they're gonna know the doors are open is if, is if we invite them in. Is if we go out and we say, look, I don't have all the answers, but I know, I know what I have experienced. Come in. We, we, don't, we, we don't need to protect God, okay? He's God. Let's bring people in and let God do what God does in changing things and making things new and making us new. We don't have to manipulate or trick people or coerce or force them into the body. There is no bait and switch because with the gospel of Jesus, it is as good and even better than is advertised. We have something in Incredible, And if we really believe that, we will share it with others. I want to remind you of the hope that we have. I want to remind you of this, this thing that keeps us moving forward, this thing that, that we hold within us, that it's, it's not just Bible stories. It's not, it's not just rules and regulations. It's not just commandments. Even though all of those things are out of love, it's not that. It's the, the promise that we have for strength today and hope for tomorrow. So I want us to turn to two passages in Scripture that remind us of this promise and this hope. The first one is from Revelation 21. And so this is the hope that we have for what is to come Revelation 21, starting in verse one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And goodness, we have seen a lot of tears in these last two years. He says, death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write this down because these words are faithful and true. We are living in a world filled with pain. We are living in a world where people are grieving losses day after day. And the hope that we have says that that is not forever. What is forever is that there will be no more of that. 
but that we will have eternity with God, our Father who loves us. But God doesn't just give us hope for heaven, even though that is wonderful and beyond what I ever deserve, but He also gives us strength here. Paul writes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says, now we have this treasure in clay jars. This treasure is the gospel of Jesus. And we are those ordinary jars. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And there are a lot of people in our world right now who are feeling afflicted, who are perplexed, who are persecuted, who are struck down, and they feel like they are going to crush under the weight of it all. But the gospel of Jesus is what bears up under all of that. It is, it is why sin does not have victory. It is why death does not have a sting. And if you'll drop down to verse 16, Paul continues, he says, therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That is our hope. That is why we do not give up. When we come to the end of the rope, it's fine because Jesus is the rock that we're standing on anyway. We do not give up, we keep going and we press on and there are people out there who are ready to give up. There are people out there, maybe even people in here today who are ready to call it quits, who are ready to, to run away. They are ready to leave, they are ready to end it all. But we do not give up. Remember that hope that we have and the hope that the world needs. And just like in the master's feast, the ones who will be there are the ones who come and the ones who come are there because they were compelled by the servant of the master. That is us. We are God's servants called to go out to bring people in. That people need this gospel. They need its strength for today. They need its hope for tomorrow. And we are going to stop making excuses, and we are going to start making disciples. Let's pray. God, God, it's my prayer that as we talk today, as we've heard your truth, that you have brought very specific people to our minds, people who need to be invited in invited into our homes, invited into our church, invited into our hearts, invited in to your kingdom. People who need your promise, 
God, bring to mind our neighbors, the people who live in the houses next door to us. Bring to mind those faces who sit beside us in the bleachers every week as we watch our kids play ball. Bring to mind those people who are in our classrooms, who ride our buses, who sit with us in the car rider line. God, people need you. We cannot keep you to ourselves because there is more than enough for everyone who wants to enter in. God, I pray that you give us courage to replace excuses. We want to see our world changed for you. We want to see people turned toward you and walking with you from here until you call us home. We pray these things in your name, amen. Y'all, thank you so much for being here today. We hope that you join us in praying for Live Love. Make sure that you sign up on the app. Stop and talk to us out in the lobby and we hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.